Our Father, as we come to your word today, my prayer is that we would see your faithfulness to your purposes, to your promises, and to your people. May we see your mercy unto your own in this passage today, Lord. Give us fresh eyes to see this text that many of us have read so many times, that we may behold your glory and the glory of Christ as he is foreshadowed in this story. For his glory, for his name we pray. Amen. There's a game that has taken the world by storm this year, and I think most of you have heard of it. I know at least one of you has played it. Uh, and, and if you haven't played it, you've, you've at least heard of it. It's Pokemon Go. Has anybody not even heard of this game? Everybody's heard of it, right? Uh, this past summer, it became a hit. And I think even um, the church was designated as a gymnasium. Is that right? Is the church a gymnasium for Pokemon Go? Yeah. And so this past summer, I, I was down in Southern California doing my doctorate studies, and I'm talking to Christina about every day, and uh, she told me that all of a sudden people start showing up all over the church property, not paying attention to anything but their phones. They're just walking around like, like this, just eyes down on their phones. And uh, so while the game has been incredibly popular, it's also created some some problems, sometimes some very serious problems. People walking out into oncoming traffic, for example, chasing some Pokemon thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I understand the game at all. I'm just saying I read the headlines and I've seen what people have done. One guy was playing and he fell off a cliff because he was paying attention to his phone and not what was going on around him. There's another incident that happened down in Arizona. The headline was this. Arizona parents abandoned toddler to play Pokemon Go. And it's a true story. You can find it on the internet, and we all know that everything that you read on the internet is automatically true, right? According to this news report, a couple in Arizona, quote, was arrested after authorities said they abandoned their two-year-old son to go play Pokemon Go. The Pinal County Sheriff's Office said it had received a call about a two-year-old boy being found outside of a home in Santan Valley, Arizona, about 10.30 p.m. on Thursday. Deputies said a neighbor spotted the boy outside the home and knocked on the door, but stated no one was there. When deputies arrived, they said the boy was crying and trying to get back inside the home. The Sheriff's Office said the child was barefoot and only had a diaper and t-shirt on. Deputies went inside the locked home and confirmed through family photos that the boy lived at the house. A deputy, for, a deputy found a phone number that appeared to be for the child's father, 27-year-old, I'll, I'll leave his name out, <laughs> when authorities called the number and told the man his child was found abandoned, they stated that the father replied, whatever, and hung up the phone. And it goes on to say, authorities said the couple later admitted that they were out playing Pokemon Go for more than 90 minutes as they drove around Santan Valley, stopping at parks and other places to play the game. Yeah, this is about all you can do. Is, you know, it, it's, stories like this, they kind of frustrate us. Uh, they, they might leave us just speechless, like, what? How does this even happen? Maybe they even anger us to an extent because we all instinctively recognize how awful and how terrible it is for a parent to abandon or neglect a child. Have you ever felt abandoned or forsaken or neglected by God? It's possible that you have. If you've been a Christian long enough, it's probable that you have at some point or another. If you're young or if you are new to the faith, it's possible that you will feel that way at some point. Maybe you've gone or, or maybe you're going through a season or a trial of testing in your life that has made you wonder if God is sleeping, if God is ignoring you, if God is off playing Pokemon Go, you know, whatever the case may be. If that's the case, if you have ever felt like that, if you feel like that now, or if you ever do feel like that in the future, the good news is that God does not abandon or neglect or forsake his children, ever. It may feel like it 
or it may have felt like it if you've been through it, but God never abandons or forsakes his children. Noah probably felt that way. As he and his family boarded this enormous ark that God had instructed him to build as a means of sheltering Noah and his family from God's wrath, a terrible flood that had engulfed the earth. It was a worldwide flood that engulfed the earth, killing everything and everyone that was not inside the ark. In fact, he lived in the ark for a year before stepping out onto dry land. He may have felt abandoned. He may have felt neglected or forsaken by God. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in his shoes. Maybe you're there right now. If you are, or if you have been, Genesis chapter 8 is a reminder. Genesis chapter 8 is an assurance that God has not forgotten you. We saw last week that the narrative of the flood is a chiastic structure. That is, it's broken into two halves, and the first half is reflected in the second half, but in reverse order. And what I did is I I printed this out. This is a copy of of what it looks like if you were to outline the events. And I have several of these if you're interested in seeing what a chiastic structure looks like. But what we saw is that the central point of the chiasm, that is, where it where it reaches a pinnacle and then starts reflecting back on the other half, the central point of the structure is the central point of the narrative. And that's where we left off last week, with the central point of the narrative. That's where we're going to also pick up this week. The central point of the narrative of the flood is found at the beginning of Genesis chapter 8, which begins with four wonderful words. But God remembered Noah. The point of this chapter is that God remembers and is faithful toward Noah. And Noah remembers and is faithful toward God. God is faithful toward Noah. Noah is faithful toward God. And we can apply that to our lives by seeing that because God is faithful to us, we must strive to be faithful unto Him. Because He is mindful of us, He remembers us, we must therefore strive to remember Him. So we pick it up with Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Let's just go ahead and and stop there for now. Here, we're starting with a high point. Stories have different, uh, different patterns. Sometimes they start at a low point and they go high. Sometimes they start at a high point and go low. This one is going to be like a, a half pipe, uh, where it's going to start high, it's going to go low, and it's going to go back high. Noah was in the midst of this flood for five months on the Jewish calendar, and he was likely tempted to despair. He was probably tempted to feel scared, to feel unsure, and perhaps to feel a little unnerved as it rained and it flooded the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. And we should be careful not to understand that to mean that God had forgotten Noah and all of a sudden, Oh yeah, there's Noah. I forgot about him. No, it's, it's not like that. Uh, God had not forgotten Noah. From Noah's perspective, that very well may have been how it felt, but we should understand that the Bible records God's people feeling abandoned, feeling forgotten, feeling forsaken all over the place. The psalmists would use that kind of language. Psalmists would commonly write things where they were pleading with God to remember them. They'd say, oh, do not forsake me, O Lord, Psalm 38, 21. At one point in his ministry, Paul felt so burnt out, he felt such despair, he felt so abandoned by God that he was ready to just die, according to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. Even Jesus, even Jesus felt the agony of feeling forsaken. So we must understand that when the Bible speaks of God remembering Noah, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten Noah. What it means is that God is now ready to act. He's ready to fulfill a promise. When it's used in reference to God and his people, it means that he's about to bless somebody 
or he's about to rescue somebody. He's ready to act favorably for somebody. God remembered Abraham, for example, and he saved Lot. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. God remembered Rachel and Hannah. And when he remembered them, he opened up their wombs to bear sons. Conversely, another type of remembering, negative. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. God remembers Babylon. God will remember the satanic empire called Babylon, and he will force her to drink the cup of his wrath down to the very last drop. So it's not that God had forgotten. It's not that God wasn't paying attention. It's that God was or or will be ready to act and thereby fulfill a promise. In this case, God is ready to bless Noah. He hadn't forgotten Noah, but he's ready to bless Noah. So how does he bless Noah here? He causes a wind to blow over the face of the waters. Does that bring you back to anything in Genesis? Does that ring a bell for anybody? A wind over the waters? It brings us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we saw that the word spirit is the same word in Hebrew as wind. Ruach. It's onomatopoetic. And so remember that the Hebrew word is the same for spirit and for wind. The Spirit of God is often likened or connected to the image of wind because while you cannot see the wind, it's got incredible power. It's undeniably there. It's got unfathomable strength if it's strong enough. You can't manipulate it. You can't control it. And yet you need it. You need it. All life on earth would die if there was no wind. The earth would become too hot to sustain life. Likewise, all life on earth would die if the Spirit of God were not preserving it. God would often use wind in accomplishing His purposes. He'd use it to bring in swarms of locusts into and and out of Egypt. He'd use it to part the Red Sea, thereby allowing His people, the Israelites, to cross the Red Sea only for the winds to stop once the Egyptians were in the Red Sea. Jesus would use wind to illustrate God's sovereignty in election and regeneration in his conversation with Nicodemus, saying, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. The God who is powerful enough to destroy the entire earth with water is also powerful and wise enough to know how to disperse the waters when his purposes are accomplished. So we continue, starting in verse 2. Verses 2 to 5. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So here we see Moses kind of repeating the pattern that he used back in Genesis chapter 1, where he gives us kind of an overview statement in the beginning God created, and then you know through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, he told us how he did that. He's kind of doing the same thing here. He gave us a, a kind of broad overview. God caused the waters to abate, and now we're going to see that happen throughout the chapter. So Moses tells us that the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. It was God who caused the water to stop. It wasn't naturalistic. It was God. This is an act of God. It's miraculous. God turned the the faucet off, so to speak. Water had been filling the earth both from above, from the canopy that was above the earth, and it was filling the earth from below, from the springs and the fountains within the earth. After five months, the waters had subsided to the point that the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Now this is some pretty interesting stuff because for centuries people have sought the ark. People have have looked, archaeologists have gone out in the Ararat mountains to look 
for the ark. And some will say that it has been discovered. Some will say it hasn't been discovered. Some will say we don't know if it's been discovered. Maybe. Uh, Count me in that last group. Maybe it has been. Maybe it hasn't been. I, I don't know. But God never did promise that he would preserve the ark for future generations. So it's not an issue of of God's faithfulness or God's promises if or if we do find the ark or if we if we don't I try not to get too caught up in speculation about it which isn't to say that it's irrelevant that's not to say that it's irrelevant if we find the ark or not it's definitely relevant it's just to say that if we were to find this giant ark up in the Ararat mountains it would neither cause true faith to, to falter, and it wouldn't cause those without faith to suddenly have faith. It wouldn't convince people to have faith. That doesn't mean that God couldn't use it as a seed to uh, to convince someone, to, to get somebody to, to change their mind. But, again, this has nothing to do with God's promises. He never promised that the ark would be preserved. The point here is that by God's grace... And by God's providence, Noah and his family would have a new beginning in the new earth, starting in the mountains of Ararat. That's where civilization would would start over and spread out from. Even though the ark settled in these mountains after seven seven months and 17 days, Noah didn't get out. Which, that's also pretty amazing if you think about it. If you've been out at sea, if you've been in this floating coffin for that long and you don't get out, that's pretty amazing. He stays put. And he waits on the Lord. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. You spent seven plus months trapped inside of this floating coffin. Do you jump out as soon as the ark settles on land? Do you want to jump out as soon as the ark settles on land? Of course you do. But do you? Or do you wait on the Lord? Noah waited on the Lord. Let's look at verses 6 to 12. We read, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So Noah waits. The ark has settled, and Noah waits for 40 days. The number 40 often represents a trial or a tribulation, a period of of testing when we find it in the Bible. For example, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for how many years? Forty, right. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Jonah preached against the Ninevites, preached God's wrath to the Ninevites for how long? How many days? Forty days. Right. Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted and tested for how many days? Forty days. Right. You get the point. Forty represents a period of testing and trial. So Noah waits 40 days. And after 40 days, he still hasn't heard anything from God. What does he do? Does he panic when he doesn't hear anything from God? He's waiting for instructions. And for 40 days, he hears nothing. So what does he do? He doesn't panic. He may have been tempted to, but instead he continues to trust the Lord's promises. He continues to trust the Lord's promises, and so he waits. And after 40 days, Noah sends out a raven first. What do we know about ravens? 
They're, they're mean, first of all. They're very mean birds. Uh, they're very aggressive. They are unclean animals, according to the law of Moses. Uh, they are scavengers, which means they eat flesh. So Moses tells us that the raven went to and fro until the waters subsided completely and the earth dried out. It didn't come back. Well, where did it go for all this time if there was no land and no place for it to no, no place for it to rest? The implication is that the raven is out having a feast on floating carcasses in the water. Kind of gross. So no, the raven didn't help Noah. What did Noah do? Nothing. He waited. No problem. Noah waits seven more days and he sends out another bird. This time he sends out a dove. Doves are not unclean animals. They're clean animals. And unlike ravens, they feed on seeds and grains only. Vegetation. It would have no interest in feasting on floating carcasses. And so it goes around, it goes out, flies around, comes back with nothing. Noah still isn't worrying. He still isn't worrying. He waits another seven days and he sends the dove out once again. And this time the dove returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its mouth. Which means that plants and vegetation and food were growing on the earth once again. And if you're filming a, a movie scene here, I think this is where you insert the, the hallelujah chorus. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the scene, the, the whole mood changes. Because there's hope. There's hope. But Noah still hasn't heard anything from God. He still hasn't heard anything from God. And so what does he do? He knows there's land out there. He knows there's vegetation. But he hasn't heard from God. And so he stays put. He stays put. He continues to wait on the Lord. Seven days later, and this is, by the way, the fourth set of seven days. Seven days later, Noah sends the dove out another time. And this time, it was gone. It didn't come back. It didn't need to come back because it didn't need a place to stay. There was food and a place to call home, to make as a home outside of the ark. This is just such a great reminder for us. If you think about how long Noah had to wait when he knew that it would have been possible to leave the ark. What a great reminder for us that God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. We're the ones who like to hurry, don't we? We've got things to do. We've got, we've got things to do and people to see and places to go. And man, it would be great if God would just do it now and you know, fit, fit his schedule into my schedule, right? We're in such a hurry. We live in a society that is just permeated, totally ingrained with this idea of instant gratification. But there's so much wisdom in learning to wait on the Lord, because the Lord is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. And that often means resisting the urge to lean on our own understanding. His plans, God's plans and purposes are drawn out from eternity. God's plans and purposes cannot fail. They cannot be thwarted. And they unfold in God's perfect timing. Not according to our understanding of when things should unfold in God's perfect timing. To wait on God means to trust in God. To wait on the Lord is to live in light of God's sovereign rule over creation. It's an acknowledgement that He is in control and that there is nothing that you can do to control or manipulate His plans and purposes. He's going to do what He's going to do when He's going to do it. Trusting in the Lord means waiting for His plans to unfold. Walking by faith and not by sight and refusing to lean on our own understanding. Walking by faith doesn't mean that you're always going to know what God's up to. You're not always going to necessarily like in the moment what God's doing. Here's something to think about though. When God sends trials, He's giving us what we would give ourselves if we knew what God knew. 
So we take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful. And that If God wanted to end our trial or our, our testing, He could. We wait, knowing that God is sovereign. He's always in control. And whatever He's doing, it is for His glory and for the good of His people. And I'm sure that this wasn't easy for Noah. I'm sure it was an exercise in restraint. And it's not easy for us either. But this is what it means to stand on God's promises. It means waiting sometimes. God had established a covenant with Noah back in chapter 6. And Noah believes that God is going to be faithful to that covenant, to that promise. And so he waits and waits and waits to hear from the Lord, to know when the Lord wants him to do something. The Lord is the one who sealed him and his family in the ark. The Lord will be the one to tell them when to leave. Let's look at verses 13 to 19 together. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the seventh month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you. You of all flesh, birds and animals of, and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So finally, God speaks. The waters finally completely subside from the earth. The ground is dry. And Noah had put some kind of removable covering or a window or a canopy, a hatch or something like that in the ark. And as he opened it to take a peek out at the world, it must have felt so strange. There must have been such a a hodgepodge of feelings and emotions. It probably felt like one of those movies, you know, if you, if you shoot it in black and white, you know, half of it, and then all of a sudden there's like a burst of, of color, an explosive burst of color across the screen. It makes a huge impact. It, it, it changes the tone. It changes the mood. The earth had a new beginning. It looked very different. It must have been both beautiful and confusing for Noah because the landscape of the earth would have been changed by the floods. The sky looked different because of the floods. It must have been both beautiful and confusing. And yet, Noah continues to stay put. He continues to trust in God's timing rather than in his own understanding in an incredible display of faith and obedience endurance, patience, until God finally speaks, instructing Noah and all on board the ark to leave. Now verses 18 and 19 strike some people as redundant, but they really serve to underscore one of the main points of of this whole narrative, and that is the obedience of Noah. He does exactly what God tells him to do. Noah's faith drove him to obey God when the world around him did not. When the world around him was godless and rebelling. Noah's faith drove him to preach a message that didn't draw a crowd. One of repentance and faith that nobody listened to for a hundred years. His faith drove him to live for the glory of God rather than for his own pleasure or for the satisfaction of those around him who were defying and rebelling against God. His faith set him apart from every other person in his world. Biblical faith trusts in God. Biblical faith believes in God, obeys God, waits on God. By grace, through faith, God delivers Noah and his family 
from God's own wrath against sin and corruption. And as Noah steps out of the ark, the earth is like a new creation with a new beginning. God has been faithful to do what God had promised and purposed to do. He delivered Noah safely. He and his family were delivered safely into this new world. And as they stepped off the ark, what do you imagine could have been going through their minds? I imagine that, again, it was just a a mix of emotions, exhilaration and fear, excitement, but apprehension. Maybe Noah and his family were wondering what would happen if they were to sin. Would God wipe them off the face of the earth? No, he would not. No, he would not, because our salvation, as we've seen, doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. It doesn't depend on the grip that we have on God. It relies on the grip that he has on us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that it depends on His faithfulness and not on ours? While growth in obedience to God is going to be evident in the life of every single true believer, we have to understand that not a single saint, no one included, has a perfect track record. And the growth that we have in obedience is often so slow that we can't even notice it. Connor walked in this morning, Dusty's son, and he must be three inches taller compared to the last time I saw him. But if I were to sit here and just look at him, I wouldn't be able to see him growing. So how do I know that he grew? Ah, It happened over time. Growth in obedience is like watching grass growing. If you keep your eyes fixed on it constantly, you're not going to see anything happen. It's just grass. It's going to sit there, and it's going to look like it's doing absolutely nothing. But if you come back in a couple weeks, it's time to mow it. You'll see that it has grown. And that's, that's how we usually grow in our faith and obedience to the Lord as well. So we need to be careful not to zoom in too closely and say, man, I, I, I realize that I just sinned. Does that mean that, that, I've, I'm, that I've, I'm not really saved? Zoom out. Look at the big picture. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Being a new creation in Christ does not mean that you will be sinless. It means that you will sin less. Noah's a great example of biblical faith. But he had 500 years to get to this point where he was this mature in his faith. Nevertheless, we have to be careful about holding him up too high. Because he's as much of a wretch, he's as much of a, of a cracked vessel as you and I are. God would not wipe Noah nor his family off the face of the earth, even if they sinned, and they will. Because God is faithful to his promises. And God is faithful to His purposes. And God is faithful to His people. What is Noah's response to this? He sees, man, he has a front row seat to seeing an act of God. And he sees how faithful God has been to him. And what's his response? Let's look at verses 20 to 22. We read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what is Noah's response to seeing, to to experiencing God's faithfulness unto him? 
he worships God. He immediately worships God. He worships fiercely and wholeheartedly. He worships without compromise. The first thing he does, it tells us, is he goes out and he builds an altar to the Lord. He takes a portion of every clean animal, every clean animal and bird, and he offers burnt offerings unto God. Trials and tribulations and difficult times can do one of two things to your faith. They can kill it, almost. They can put it on life support. Or it can be like fuel on a fire. It can cause your heart to grow bitter and cold toward God. Or, if you're able to see and appreciate how God has delivered you through the trials of life, you can grow in your faith. You can grow in your gratitude toward God. Even, you can even become thankful for the trial. Noah feels a deep sense of gratitude toward God. And so he offers burnt offerings unto God. The rule, when you gave a burnt offering, the rule was that you have to give it all to the Lord. You don't keep any for yourself. You don't compromise. You don't hold anything back. You don't keep any for, your, for yourself for later. So in that sense, the burnt offering is kind of like a picture of Noah's life. He held nothing back. He refused to compromise. Though he was a sinner, he desired to present all of his life unto God. And we see that God was pleased by the aroma of Noah's offering. Which forces us to ask an important question. A really important question. Why does God find the aroma of these sacrifices pleasing? Why was God satisfied with what Noah had to offer? It wasn't because they smell so good. It wasn't because Noah used this great new barbecue sauce and seasoned it just right. And so the aroma was like filling the house and you couldn't wait to take a bite. No. This brings us back to Cain and Abel, where we ask the same question. What made Cain's offering unacceptable, but Abel's offering acceptable? Faith is the difference. Faith is the difference. Faith is what pleases God. God accepted the sacrifices made by Abel because God was looking at Abel's heart. And Abel's heart was filled with faith. And that's why God is pleased by Noah's offering as well. Noah had faith that God would be faithful to do what he said he would do. Noah had faith that God was going to deliver him through this impossible situation. He believed also that God was going to be faithful to the promise that he made back in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a Messiah. That he would send an offspring through the woman. And Noah believed that he was going to do that just like he promised. And so Noah looked forward in time, in faith, to the Messiah, to Christ. Trusting in what Christ would do. And we look backward in time, in faith, trusting in what he did do, in what Christ did do. We're saved the same way. We're looking at the same event from different perspectives. One before, one after. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ stepped out of the heavenly realm, the eternal realm. He took on flesh and He gave Himself freely for us, offering Himself as a sacrifice for anyone who would place saving faith in Him. According to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Christ is the one and only acceptable offering and sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. Ultimately, the only sacrifice which pleased God was the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, fulfilling the demands and obligations of the law perfectly, never straying for one nanosecond from the will of the Father. 
Let me ask you this. What will shelter you? What will shelter you from God's wrath against your sin? Only Christ is able. Only Christ can shelter you from God's wrath. Only Christ is qualified to be your perfect substitute before God. Standing in your place, taking the wrath of God on your behalf. Only Christ can do it. Only Christ is qualified. Only Christ lived a sinless life. So only He can be your substitute before God. Noah recognized that God was worthy of worship and praise. Because Noah not only saw the power of God's wrath, he experienced the power of God's grace. He experienced the power of God's grace and his response was to strive to live every moment of his life in obedience to God for the glory of God, presenting every aspect of his own life as a living sacrifice unto God. Because God remembered Noah, Noah remembered God. Because God was faithful unto Noah, Noah would strive to be faithful unto God. Have you experienced God's grace? Have you personally experienced God's grace? How will you respond to it? How will you respond to it? Will you offer him a part of your life? Maybe you could offer him, you know, just an hour and a half or so on Sunday mornings and an hour and a half or so on Wednesday nights and the rest of the week is is yours. You just give him a little bit, you know, here and there to keep him happy. Is that the way it works? That's not the way it works. Will you offer him your whole life? Your whole life, every aspect of your life, every day? Will you strive to offer every moment of every day as a living sacrifice unto the Lord? In response to Noah's worship, God makes three distinct promises. The first is that he will not curse the ground any longer or any further. That is, he will not add to humanity's afflictions. Rather than wiping them off the face of the earth and thus ending their sin that way, He would have a new way of dealing with sinners who would not turn. He would hand them over to their sin and let sin destroy them. Number two, he promised not to flood the earth again like he did in Noah's time. He said he wouldn't do that again. Number three, he promised not to interrupt the seasons or the cycles of nature as long as the earth exists. And this reminds us, That every season, every cycle, every day, every night, all the things that he lists there, those are all gifts from God. Every day, every minute, every second is a gift from God. It's grace. We so easily take it all for granted because it's the way it's always been. But every sunrise, every sunset, every season, every breath, They are all reminders of God's goodness and His grace. And let's notice that all three of these promises, by the way, are unconditional. They're not conditioned on whether humanity is faithful to God or not. They're not contingent upon the obedience of Noah. They're not contingent upon the obedience of anyone else. Instead, what we see is that God makes these promises in spite of man's faithlessness, in spite of man's sinfulness, he sees that we're utterly sinful from the moment of conception. From youth, our intentions are evil. Nevertheless, God will show grace. God will show grace. He will be faithful to his promises despite man's persistent sinfulness. There's a story of a man who came to D.L. Moody once who did not feel assured of his salvation. He was not feeling any sense of assurance of salvation. He wanted to feel the blessing of assurance. There's a reason we call the song Blessed Assurance. 
And so he asked him, I don't know, you know, Pastor Moody, I don't know if I'm saved. And Moody asked him, was Noah safe in the ark? Of course he was, the man said. And Moody responded, what made him safe? His feelings or the ark? Good question. The man apparently got the point. We're not saved because we feel like we're saved. Our salvation doesn't rest on our feelings at all. Our feelings don't save us. If anything, our hearts will deceive us. Our feelings, our emotions, they can all deceive us so easily and they will mislead us. So what gives us true, biblical assurance of salvation? Faith does. Faith in Christ is the one source of true assurance. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is not just your greatest hope before God? Do you believe that He is your only hope before God? If you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that God has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He is not neglecting you. He is causing all things to work together for the good of His people and the glory of Himself. God has promised that if you have placed saving faith in Christ, not only will He remember you, but there's, there's something that He won't remember your sins. He will remember your sins no longer. That doesn't mean that he, that all of a sudden he has no idea of what you've ever done. What that means is that he releases you from those debts, sin debts. It means your sin was dealt with. It means he won't hold your sin against you any longer. It means your sins have all been forgiven and you are washed white as snow through faith in Christ. Your sin debt has been forgiven. It's been paid. It was imputed to Christ and Christ's perfect righteousness was imputed to you. Jesus said this. He said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It's from John chapter 15. God will not forget you. God will not forsake you. And if you need assurance that he abides in you, then abide in Him. Abide in Him and bear much fruit for the glory of God. C.T. Studd once said this, quote, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. So what will you bring? This King of glory. What will you offer to the King of kings and Lord of lords? May I advise you to bring to him what pleases him, what he desires, a heart filled with faith. A faith that is repentant, a faith that is obedient, a faith that is thankful even for the trials in life because all they do is they serve to strengthen us and show us God's grace front row. So make every day, make every second count presenting every aspect of your life as a living sacrifice unto the God of new beginnings. Because God is faithful to us, we must strive to be faithful to Him. Because He remembers us, we must strive to be constantly remembering Him. He will never let us go. He will hold us fast. Because our salvation rests on His faithfulness, not ours. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being a God who is mighty to save, whose faithfulness is never failing, whose mercies are new every day. Thank you for being a God who is like a father who never neglects, never abandons, never forsakes his children. Thank you for the assurance that by grace, through faith, we know you are with us. We know that you are with us, whether it's on a mountain peak in life or whether it's in a valley in life. We know that you are with us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy unto us. Father, we acknowledge in the silence of our hearts that we fall so short of your perfect standards, of your perfect righteousness. And we realize, Lord, that it is only by grace that we have any chance of standing before you, justified, blameless, faultless. And so we thank you for sending your Son to bear the wrath against our sins that we deserved. Thank you for clothing us in the righteousness of Christ that we may stand before you. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to rely on your promises, to remember your promises, and to believe your promises, and in turn to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto you for your glory in Christ's name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.